God now speaks to us in the reading of His Word. We'll invite you now to turn with me to the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1. And our scripture reading this morning will be from verse 39 to the end of verse 56. And we want to consider this morning the first of the Advent songs, the Song of Mary. The Song of Mary, beginning in verse 39. Let's now give our attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went, into the, went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and returned to her home. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. Well, my beloved flock. The first week of Advent, we want to consider this morning the wonderful song of Mary. And this has been a hymn that has been recognized by the church throughout the ages as a wonderful declaration of confidence in God. She moves from uncertainty Earlier in chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel came to her and announced that she would be pregnant with the Holy Ghost child in verses 29 and 34, I think you could only describe her initial reaction to this news as surprised. Maybe she was somewhat concerned about this soon coming pregnancy. She was uncertain. But she moves in this him to a certainty in God, especially in God, her Savior. I think we can all be sympathetic with Mary for her uncertainty. Church historians or Bible theologians, I should say, uh, she's a young woman. They assume that she's likely between the ages of 14 and 16 years old. And she's just been informed, though she is unmarried, that she is to be pregnant with the Son of God, even though a virgin. 
even though unmarried. I know that there are some women of that age here in this congregation. How would you feel at this news? Maybe not so excited. And of course, we remember that the implications of being a pregnant, unmarried woman in Israel uh, would have been huge. Remember that fornication, any sexual relationship outside of marriage would have been considered extremely taboo and strictly forbidden. From the outside looking in, seeing this young, pregnant, unmarried woman, that's exactly what this would have looked like. That she's participated in some fornication, gotten pregnant, and now has brought great shame on her and her family. But what we see in our Scripture passage this morning is that God is gracious to His servants. God is gracious to those whom He calls. And God gives Mary a certainty that she doesn't need to fear. Mary doesn't need to be afraid of the future that the baby in her womb is conceived of the Lord. Likewise, congregation, the Lord knows the weakness of our faith. How Satan so often attacks the truth of God's message. Not just for Mary, but also for us here today. If you look in the beginning of Luke's chapter, or Luke's book, I should say, in the beginning of chapter 1, Luke tells you why he wrote this book. For Theophilus, but also for us, that you might have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. Luke is not only writing that Mary would have a certainty about the reality of the baby in her womb, but Luke is writing that we would have a certainty that the baby in her womb is in fact of the Lord. This wasn't the subject, this wasn't the fault of an overzealous young woman yet to be betrothed, but by Jesus' conception, God is in fact fulfilling His covenant promises. That by Jesus' conception, God is fulfilling His covenant promise. That's our theme for our time today. And we want to see that in three movements this morning in our passage. There's a divine confirmation from Elizabeth. And then we want to see Mary's reflection in the first part of her hymn, on the divine conception. And then in the second part of the hymn, she reflects on divine salvation. We see a divine confirmation, a divine conception, and divine salvation. Let's first consider the words of Elizabeth to Mary before we even get to the hymn. It would have been likely that if Mary had recounted the words of the angel Gabriel earlier in Luke chapter 1, if she had proclaimed to her friends and her family that she was pregnant by the Holy Ghost, what do you think the reception would have been by her friends and family and local community? As John Calvin says, she would have been laughed at. She would have been treated with scorn, much like she would be today. Nobody would have believed her. Remember that Joseph himself, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, doesn't believe Mary. Her own betrothed intends to put her away. To divorce her quietly, it says. And so the passage we read this morning, verse 39, says with haste, Mary makes for the hill country of Judah to visit Elizabeth. 
Why does she do that immediately after Gabriel speaks to her? Because Elizabeth is the only one who would have believed Mary. Remember, think back to Luke chapter 1. Jesus' conception is not the first miraculous conception in this book, is it? Jesus' miraculous birth is not the first miraculous birth in this book. In fact, before we even get to the subject of Jesus in Luke's writing, we first start with the subject of the person and work of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the subject of Luke's Gospel for the uh, first 25 verses. John is, uh, is John's father... Zechariah is met in the temple of God and the angel of the Lord speaks to him and tells him that there will be a son to be born of an old Elizabeth. She is miraculously pregnant. In her old age, we heard about Isaac yesterday much like Sarah was. In fact, Genesis 18 where that promise is given that with when the angels, uh, the threefold angels come to Sarah and she laughs, remember the angel's response, nothing is impossible with God, is actually quoted here in Luke chapter 1. Elizabeth, much like Sarah, is believing the promise that God will give her a son, even in her old age. God With God, nothing is impossible, even though she's past menopause. Even though she can't have children any longer, she is believing nothing is impossible. So Mary goes to her. And she consoles her, and comforts her, and confirms to her the promises of God. Look at the first confirmation. And verse 40 and 41, as Mary walks into the house of Zechariah, she greets her relative. We greeted our relatives this weekend. There was probably hugs. There was probably kisses. There was pleasantries exchanged. And it says that as Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, John the Baptist leaps in her womb. Now the pregnant women who are here can testify that children move in the womb. But I would like to ask them the question, does this sound comfortable or natural that there is a child leaping in the womb? And I see a sinister, not sinister, a snide smile in this section of the church over here saying, I think my suspicions are right. That's not comfortable. And it doesn't sound natural. Elizabeth, if you jump down to verse 44, even says this wasn't natural. In fact, it was unnatural. It was, this leaping was prompted by the Holy Spirit that John, even though not yet born, is acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ. At this point, Elizabeth likely would have only been six months pregnant. Jesus would have been only conceived, just conceived, just a little embryo in the womb, yet John is recognizing in her the majesty of of God. It was said of David when the majesty of God and the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem 
2 Samuel 6.16 leapt and danced before the majesty of God. Became undignified. And John, in some ways, is like David. A herald of Christ going before Him to prepare a way and rejoicing that God is now with His people. The majesty of God has returned to Israel. This is the first confirmation for Mary before John had even uttered a word, before John could even see. He testifies to the proof of Jesus' divinity. Congregation, shouldn't this remind us as well that we may sometimes experience fear or doubt regarding the fulfillment of God's promises? We may wonder about the fear of how society will will respond to our confession of Jesus Christ. We may fear about how society will treat us for baptizing our children and believing that God will save them. We may have fears about whatever the promise of God may be, the resurrection of the dead, whatever it is, shouldn't we look to other Christians for comfort in those promises? It's part of Satan's temptation that when we have doubt, that he tempts us to look to the world. But we should look to other saints. Look to the older saints who have gone before us and see in them a faithfulness unto God that can confirm us in the promises that we too are struggling with. But the first confirmation is John leaping in the womb, but we move on and we see that there's a second confirmation. Elizabeth, in the second half of verse 41, is immediately filled with the Holy Spirit and she prophesies over Mary. And the focal point, no doubt, of her prophecy is these words, the mother of my Lord. Up until this point in Luke's Gospel, the word Lord... In Greek, kurios has been used ten times. And in every instance of that word being used, it is referred to the God of Israel. Here Luke, who is no slouch, who knows what he's doing, is highlighting the sameness. He's highlighting the continuity between the God of Israel and the babe in Mary's womb. It is as if Elizabeth, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the first person to say, Jesus is Lord. But that's not all she says, is it? No, three times Mary says, or Elizabeth says, Mary is blessed. Verse 42, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then verse 45, blessed is she who believes in the promise. Now we know for some folks who we might work with or know, have family members we're related to, mainly the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, they have taken these words to mean that she is favored, full of grace, and blessed, that she is without original sin that she was born not in the state of corruption. And this is probably the only time you'll hear me quote the Catholic Catechism from this pulpit congregation. But Pope Pius himself, the ninth, said, the Blessed Virgin Mary from the moment of conception was preserved and free from the stain of original sin. 
Others went so far as to say she was actually free not only from original sin, but every sin. She never sinned. What does it mean to be blessed of God? It means to receive God's favor. It means to receive God's favor. And Mary is assuredly blessed. The child in her womb, Jesus, is assuredly blessed. But not because of anything she has done, but because of what God has done. In fact, the Greek word here is in the passive form, meaning it receives the action of the verb. She is blessed because she has received the action of God. Let me prove it to you. If you flip to Luke chapter 1, later in Luke's own writing, Jesus is in a crowd and somebody cries out in verse 27, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. And what does Jesus say? Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus Himself is clarifying, yes, Mary is blessed, but she's not blessed because she brought Christ into the world. She's not simply blessed because of anything that she has done. Mary is blessed because she has heard the promise of the Gospel and she's believed it. Friends, what does this mean for us too this morning? Are we blessed of God? You do not need to be perfect or spotless in order to be blessed of God. The way to the blessedness of God is simply to hear the promise and to believe. To believe upon the Lord Jesus. To trust in His promise. To firmly cling to Him. To make Christ the ground of your salvation then you are assuredly blessed. That's what Christ is saying in Luke 1. Luke 11, excuse me. That's what Elizabeth is saying in Luke chapter 1. Mary is blessed for receiving the promise of God and believing. Are you blessed this Sunday morning? Have you heard the promise and responded in faith? We see then after Mary has heard this divine prophecy, She now rejoices. She gives a hymn. We see this in our second point, divine conception. You see in the Old Testament, when God did a mighty deed in the lives of His people, they often responded with a hymn of praise. Even though she's uncertain about the future, she's uncertain about how her betrothed will feel under her, she glorifies God with this hymn. And notice the words that sort of set the tone, if you will, of her hymn, verses 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God. Listen to these words. My Savior. Magnify. Of course, young children, you know if you take a magnifying glass out, it makes something bigger. She wants her God to be bigger. She wants His name to be greater. She wants His name to be renowned because He is the God of her salvation. You see, Mary was a sinner. Just like we're all sinners here today. 
She was born in her sins. She, died, she would have died in her sins and her trespasses. If Jesus came, she would have never had a Savior. She'd have no chance at heaven. But she can rejoice that day some 2,000 years ago because she has a Savior. And a Savior doesn't mean you're saved once and only once. And then you've got to get to heaven on your own. It doesn't mean you're saved 90% and you have to do the last 10% of your salvation. Or 95 and 5% or 99 and even 1%. No, as John Calvin points out, to have a Savior means that He will always take care of us and our salvation until He brings it to its fulfillment. He will always take care of us in our salvation until He brings it to its fulfillment. She rejoices. This is the day of salvation for Mary. I have a Savior. And not a Savior to me alone, but look at verse 50. A Savior from generation to generation. That peoples of all lands, tribes, nations, and tongues of old all the way to the future now have a Savior through me? I magnify God. I glorify God. I'm assured of heaven. Assured of salvation, even though a sinner. She's overflowing with praise. Don't you see that in verses 48 and 50? And for some of us, this is hard to understand. It's hard for me to understand. A 14 or 6 to 16 year old girl excited about pregnancy? See, if you grow up in the time period that I grew up in, teen pregnancy is the worst thing you could do. That is known as like the, the shackles of life. Right? That's how they scare you in your, uh, your health classes. Don't do this, because you might get pregnant. Here she rejoices in God in her pregnancy. And her motivation for praise is found in her exaltation that she has now moved from the lowest state to the highest status. Mary, it says in Matthew's Gospel, is a woman of lowly means. Uh, she was simply a carpenter's wife. Matthew 1, verse 20. Even when they came and dedicated Jesus in the temple, they did not bring an oxen or a bull or even a sheep or a goat. They brought doves. The lowest bracket of the financial economy of Israel. Because they couldn't afford to bring anything else. So they brought birds. She was of meager means. She would not be the world's first choice to receive honor and glory. But William Hendrickson said, she is, what is bestowed upon her is the highest honor conceivable. Think about it like this. You know when you have a child, for those of you who have children, 
and your heart sometimes just seems to overflow with love for them. You see your, their mannerisms, their voice, their laugh, and you see them mature and grow up before your eyes. I think what William Hendrickson is saying is this. She has been given the highest privilege of seeing Jesus in that way. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, lay in her lap. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, she kissed His face. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, she knew His voice, His mannerisms, His laughter. If you have a child, you know this delight. And it was magnified in the person of Jesus Christ. How much more so would your heart be thrilled and delighted with the one that you delight in is God who knows you, who knows your sin, and yet still loves your soul. She may have been a lowly maidservant, but she surely is blessed. God has done a great thing for her in giving her the greatest of gifts, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet Mary praises God because His mercy does not stop with her, but it extends to all who fear and love Him from generation to generation. A word of application this morning. Congregation, what's your favorite part of Christmas? I know for the kids, I know the answer. It's presents. I know for the parents, the answer as well, it's sleeping on your holiday break. But something I'm finding to enjoy more and more as I get older is the lights. Christmas lights. And we put up our tree this weekend. and The lights are not without meaning. In fact, we put them up in the darkest time of the year. It's very symbolic. You see, the darkest time of the year, Isaiah 9 tells us, is symbolic of our sins. But a light has dawned. There is now mercy. There is now salvation. And we now rejoice in the light of our Savior. You see, the message of Christmas isn't gifts, although that's good. The message of Christmas isn't more rest, although that's good, or turkey or whatever it might be. The message of Christmas is we can't save ourselves. The world is a dark place. There is trials. There are sins. We are sinners like Mary in need of a Savior. Things are really bad. The darkness of the night reflects the darkness of the world, but nevertheless there is hope on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. Isaiah 9.12 John also says in John 8 verse 12, Jesus is the light. In the darkness, a light has dawned. Salvation has dawned. Christ has come in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We see this in our final point here this morning. Divine fulfillment. Divine fulfillment in verses 51 through 56. God had always said He would save His people. Always. 
In the Old Testament, they looked forward to Jesus Christ. But they didn't know Him. They couldn't see Him clearly. They generally knew through the sacrifices and through the temple that some Messiah would come. But it was always vague as to how this would happen. How this promises would be fulfilled. How the Messiah would come. Even the prophets, the priests, and the kings of old were not altogether clear how salvation was to come. But Mary, notice this. In this third section of the hymn, says, the longing for salvation in Israel has been fulfilled by the child in her womb. This is a major Christmas theme. Think of the words of O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come thou long expected Jesus. Or excuse me, come thou long expected Jesus is the hymn. Born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth. Desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. This is the hope of what all of God's people have looked towards this very moment in history. And isn't this what Mary worships God for in verse 51? Young children here who are learning how to read and learning especially English, look here at verse 51 with me. And what tense is the words, the verbs in this verse in? It's not future tense that He will show His strength. It's not present that He is showing, but it's past tense. He has shown. He has scattered the proud, the thoughts. And it's the same in the Greek. In the past, God has shown His strength. He has. Strength with His arm which should remind us of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. When God with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand saved His people. Luke even uses this language in Acts 13. The God of His people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, Luke says, He led them out of Egypt. God has done Mighty and wonderful acts of salvation. Glorious displays of strength. Remember the plagues. The splitting of the Red Sea. Letting His people walk through it. And then crashing that sea back down upon Pharaoh. Mighty acts of strength. But Mary says in verses 51-56, through But God has never done something mightier. He has never had a greater act of strength than what He has done in me. What is implied here is that God has done a wonderful work in the salvation in the exodus of old. But He has now brought about a new exodus. God the mighty, divine warrior has lifted his arm again. 
but he does not save by chariots or spears or an army, but he is now saved through the miraculous conception of an infant, through favor towards the meek and lowly, through death on a cross, God has shown the might of his strength. And God will bring about a new creation. You see that in verses 52 and 53, the overthrowing of the thrones, the rich are made low, the poor are made high. That is that God is compassionate to the poor and the weak. This reversal of status throughout the Bible is used to indicate that God not only cares for the mighty and the holy, but He has a deep regard for the weak and the poor, the orphan and the widow, the hungry. And that God has come for them. He didn't come for the rich. That doesn't mean you can't have wealth. But He didn't come for those who are self-sufficient. Those who have no need of Him. He came for the broken. And God has remembered them in mercy. That's her final point in verses 54 and 55. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. God had promised the saints of old that He would save them from their sins. That He would save them from their death and hell. And now He has remembered in mercy His promise. He swore to Abraham that he would be his God. Genesis 17. He swore to Abraham he would give him his righteousness. Genesis 15. And Mary sings now this morning that the baby in her womb is the realization of God's salvation. A final point to make. Verse 55. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring, forever. The word in the Greek is spermatai. I think you can figure out what it means. And if not, ask your parents. Better it come from them than it come from me. This verb, this verb or excuse me, this word is often translated as seed. And if you think back to God's promise in Genesis 3.15, in the Greek, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your spermatos, your seed, and her offspring, spermatos, seed, your seed, a woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We call this the mother promise. Genesis 3.15, the promise of all promises, the first proclamation of the Gospel, that there would be a woman whose offspring, whose seed, would overthrow all evil. There would be a woman whose seed would crush Satan. There would be a woman whose seed would bring salvation and be the fountainhead of mercy unto generation to generation. And Mary says, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, I am blessed, for I am that woman. I am that woman whom God has been merciful to give that promised seed who will be born, who will live, who will die, and who will rise 
that he can give mercy to all who fear him. Let's conclude. Congregation, that mercy still flows from the throne of grace right now this morning. That covenant promise still holds today. You do not need to be mighty or holy or great to come to Christ. All that is required is a heart touched by the Gospel and to believe and trust in Him. Mary was blessed for hearing the promise and responding in faith. And God has shown us by Elizabeth's prophecy, by the conception of Christ, by the promises of old, that there is certainty in Jesus for Mary and for our salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we do give You thanks this morning that You have given us a Savior. A Savior whom You have promised of old, even back in the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who brought sin and damnation into this world. You were merciful to proclaim that there would come One who by, his, by the woman's seed would bring salvation to Your people. To bring blessing to Your people. We are that people, O God. What privilege is ours? And so we rejoice with Mary this morning that salvation has come. Not just for her, but for us as well. We pray, Heavenly Father, if there be any among us who have not believed in this promise of God, that they would receive it now with a believing heart. Do this work for Your glory and for the good of Your people here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.